Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Father in heaven, thank you for this special day. We thank you for the power of our Lord Jesus, who has vanquished our enemies and who has changed the world. And Lord, I pray that you would help this realization change our lives. Please speak to us this morning, Lord, and open our eyes that we can see the kind of life that you have for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As a boy, I recall watching ABC's Wild World of Sports and the cliff diving championships from Acapulco, Mexico. Brave men dove headfirst from a ledge 136 feet above a slender inlet of ocean. The water depth below them varied from 6 feet to 16 feet, depending on the tide and the waves. Timing was crucial. Even after the diver pierced the water, no one took a breath. Every eye focused on the bubbles that marked his entrance. Not until he surfaced and waved to the crowd did everyone know he had survived, that he was okay. But spectators at the cliff diving championships all looked. They expected that diver to still be alive. Not so with the disciples. For when Jesus dove into the icy waters of death, everyone assumed that he would never rise. They had seen the torture and the blood and his last breath. They had held his lifeless corpse and even wrapped it in strips of linen cloth. No one expected Jesus to surface. For of all death's characteristics, none is more ominous than its irreversibleness. Lose a loved one and it doesn't really hit you until the first Christmas afterward. Or maybe the Easter get-together. He or she is conspicuously missing. He's never coming home. She won't be returning. Their departure was permanent. As many of you know, my dad died in November of 2021. Mom died April 19 a year ago. This past Friday, my brother and I, we sold their house of 50 years. We both have known it for some time. But the sale of that house made it more of a reality. Our parents are not coming home. The truth is, when you die, you're dead. Life is a one-way journey, not a round trip. Death is irreversible. And this is what the disciples assumed about the Master. When the women came to the garden tomb to finish spicing up the corpse, no one had any inkling of expectation that they would ever see Jesus alive again. The days following Jesus' crucifixion, Roman soldiers had guarded the tomb 
Not because they expected some spark of life. They were on duty to prevent a conspirator from stealing the corpse. No one dared imagine a miracle. John 20 verse 1 here tells us, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. Matthew says that they came as the day, quote, began to dawn. Luke reports it was very early in the morning. And of course, these diverse descriptions are easily reconciled. Apparently, the ladies left the upper room pre-dawn, then the sun rose on their way to the garden tomb. But I always like to start the story of the resurrection with John 20, verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 1. Because it was still dark in more ways than one. Even though Jesus had taught his disciples that he would be crucified and rise the third day, the possibility of a literal resurrection had never crossed their minds. They were confined by the irreversibleness of death. Author Kent Hughes calls these disciples at this point Saturday's children. Saturday's kids are deflated people. They feel cheated by life. Their dreams have never panned out. Any optimism they once had has faded. Disappointment now colors their mindset. Life is not what they'd hoped for. Death and defeat seems irreversible. But one event transformed Saturday's children into Sunday's children. For with the resurrection of Jesus, sadness and evil and disappointment and defeat became reversible. Hope and joy and faith became the new realities. A triumphant approach to life was born. In the future, the disciples will be persecuted and plundered, but nothing will get them down. They'll recall the empty tomb and the power of Jesus, and they'll trust in His ability to turn sorrow into gladness. And today, I would like to take you through that first day, that first Sunday, and show you the difference that a day can make. I want to recount day one of a new era, how that day shook out, and how it has transformed every day since. Well, was it dark? Had the day begun to dawn? How early was it? You'll find other examples of ambiguity in the gospel record of the resurrection. Was it one angel or two? What exactly made up the band of women who came to the tomb? I bring up these details because it's obvious the four gospel writers didn't all get together to make sure that they had their story straight. If the resurrection had been a hoax, they would have had a powwow to work out the apparent loose ends. Obviously, they didn't. The first disciples were too surprised, too stunned by the event itself. Don't misunderstand, none of the details mentioned by the gospel writers contradict each other. All four gospel accounts can be easily reconciled. But I don't think coordinating details were the author's top priority. These writers were too overwhelmed by the elephant in the room. They were trying to get their heads around a miracle of unmatched proportion. What they always assumed was irreversible had now been reversed. 
For the first time in history, a man who was dead had come back to life, never to die again. If you had asked the biblical authors today, they'd probably say, hey, the Son of God had just defeated death, hell, and the grave. The position of the sun in the sky wasn't our primary focus. Mark 16, verse 3 tells us, As the women walked to the tomb, they said among themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? A huge stone, weighing maybe two ton, sealed the tomb shut. The girls were discussing how they would remove the stone. But their concern was needless fretting. In fact, the followers of a risen Lord are going to discover that a lot of their worries are nothing but needless fretting. In fact, here's the first Sunday reversal. Since Jesus is alive and well, many of the problems we thought were problems are not really problems at all. A risen Christ opens up possibilities previously unconsidered. Matthew 28 verse 2 tells us what happened as the ladies approached the tomb. There was a great earthquake... For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. I'm sure millions of angels came to gawk that day. They were on hand for the resurrection, but only two made themselves visible. On my first trip to Israel, I visited a place called the King's Tomb. It's kind of an out-of-the-way site, not on most tour itineraries. I went there because it features a tomb with an example of how a stone was rolled over the opening. A channel gets cut in the rock right in front of the grave. A stone is then placed at the top of the gutter, and a wedge is driven in under the rock. When it's time to roll the stone, you kick out the wedge, and gravity pulls the stone in place. This is how it rolled at the garden tomb. When Mark writes, the stone had been rolled away, he uses a term that means rolled up, an incline or a slope. The angel-induced earthquake didn't just push the stone backward, but upward. John states, the stone had been taken away. John uses the Greek word arrow which means to pick up and to carry. In other words, the stone caught air. Arrow. A 4,000-pound rock blew off the mouth of that grave. A few years ago, an underground fire in downtown Atlanta blew a half-dozen manhole covers several feet up into the air. Thankfully, no one was injured. But it takes quite a force to throw upwards 300 pounds of cast iron. And yet that was nothing compared to the resurrection power of Jesus. It blasted that stone right off of the grave. And the reason wasn't to let Jesus out. We'll see later, the resurrected body of Jesus had supernatural capacities. The risen Lord could walk through stone walls and travel distances instantaneously. Apparently an immortal body isn't bound by mortal laws and limits. Realize the stone was moved not to let Jesus out, but to let us in so that the world could see that he was not there. Apparently, the Roman garrison guarding the tomb had front row seats for the miracle. Matthew 28 verse 4 states, 
the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Notice again the reversal here. These were special ops, battle-tested soldiers, yet they quivered in fear before an angel. At first they played dead, then they ran like rabbits. The resurrection of Jesus made brave Romans cower and cowering disciples grow brave. Matthew tells us the soldiers also feared Pilate. His orders were to guard the tomb. That's when they went to the chief priest. Since they had failed to guard the tomb, they paid the Jews to smooth things over with Pilate. The soldiers said they would tell everyone the disciples had come at night and stolen the body while they slept. Ironically, to save their own skin, they agreed to the lie they were sent to prevent. But the Romans weren't the only people who ran from the tomb. John tells us that Mary Magdalene left the other women who came to prepare the body of Jesus. When she saw that the tomb was empty, in her excitement, she raced back to the upper room to fetch Peter and John. And yet while Mary's gone, Luke 24 verse 5 tells us two angels appear in shining garments to the other women at the tomb. One of the angels asks, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. And these are the words that are today engraved on the door of the garden tomb. He is not here, but is risen. There are famous tombs all over the world. Hadrian's tomb in Rome, Lenin's tomb in Red Square, the Taj Mahal in India, Westminster Abbey in London, Pharaoh's tomb, the Pyramid of Giza, the tomb of the unknown soldier in Washington, D.C. But it's ironic, the world's most famous tomb, the garden tomb in Jerusalem, is an empty tomb, for Jesus is risen. You can dance on Muhammad's remains, or on the Buddha's body, or on Confucius's corpse, but not on Jesus. His body is risen. I've been inside that tomb where Jesus was buried, and he's no longer there. I looked twice. He's risen. Thus, the world's most famous tomb is an empty tomb. But the empty grave isn't all I noticed when I was at the garden tomb. If you look at the top of the wall, you'll see security fencing surrounding the compound. Sharp glass shards are embedded in the concrete. It's a sign of the conflict that exists just outside their walls. Surely folks who live near the tomb are familiar with the facts. They know that Christ is risen. They live next door to the evidence. But the perpetual violence and turmoil in the area is a sign that they've yet to experience the risen Lord. And I wonder how many folks here this morning are in that same boat. Intellectually, we believe Jesus lives, but we don't know him personally. We're unfamiliar with his power and with his presence. We've never experienced his love. Notice again the question the angel asked the women. Why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, why are you looking in a graveyard for a man who's alive? Why treat a living, breathing human being as if he were dead? And yet Christians and churches are guilty of this crime every single Sunday. 
Oh, we'll read His words and apply His teachings. Or we'll recall His past accomplishments and learn from His example. Or we'll sing songs about Him. But there we stop. Why not press further and seek to know Him? Don't just sing songs about Him. Express your heart to Him. Make prayer a dialogue, not just a monologue. And don't just work for the Lord. Seek to work with Him. For Sunday's children, church isn't a eulogy for a dead man. It's an encounter with the living Lord Jesus. Well, after speaking to the women, Mark tells us that the angel instructed them to return to the rest of the disciples and let them know that Jesus had risen. I love Mark 16, verse 7. The angel says to the ladies, But go, tell his disciples and Peter. Check out that special nod. And Peter. Jesus plans to reach out, especially to Peter, to assure him that he's forgiven now. You recall Peter's disaster the night before the crucifixion. Peter denied Jesus three times. He proved chicken before the rooster crowed. Peter was so defeated, he went out and wept bitterly. And yet here's proof that the love of Jesus never fails, even when his disciples do. See, Saturday's children are guilt-ridden and buried under a mound of condemnation. Their shoulders droop under heavy weight of remorse. But Sunday's children, they know the joy of God's forgiveness. His pardon is always available to people who humble themselves and are willing to change. Here's a possible play-by-play of how these events, the events of day one, unfolded. Early in the morning, Jesus is resurrected. An angel in an earthquake removed the stone. Women arrive at the tomb and find it empty. The Romans flee while Mary Magdalene races to tell Peter and John. The other women encounter the two angels who inform them that Jesus is risen. They're told to tell the disciples and Peter. And as the girls leave, Matthew 28 verse 9 tells us, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. And here is the operative word for all of Sunday's children. Rejoice. It means take joy. For even when hardships arise and life bites hard, we can always take joy in the victory that's been won by Jesus. Well, that's when Peter and John arrive at the tomb along with Mary Magdalene. John 20 verse 4. They both ran together and the other disciple, which was John, of course, outran Peter. It's interesting, John mentions he outran Peter and came to the tomb first. You know, John just has to mention he outran his buddy. Apparently, even at such a holy moment, boys will be boys. It also indicates, though, how much they wanted to believe. Imagine the conversation en route. Could it be he's alive after all that's happened? Or maybe Peter, how will he ever forgive me after my colossal failure? After inspecting the empty tomb for himself, as Peter leaves the garden, Jesus appears to him personally. What a moment that must have been. The first time 
post-resurrection that grace is extended and grace is received. Sunday's children are all about God's grace. Well, Mary had stayed behind at the tomb, and at this point she didn't know what had happened to Jesus. John 20, verse 11 reads, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And the Greek word there means wailing. She wasn't just whimpering. She was crying profusely. She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. You know, I love Mary's preoccupation with Jesus. Remember, she's talking to celestial beings. Angels, no less. But she hardly notices or pay attention to the angels. She's in an all-out pursuit of Jesus, the King of angels. All Sunday's children seek Jesus supremely. And then verse 14 tells us, Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Why didn't she know? We're not told. It could have been the power of suggestion. Mary had concluded that death is irreversible. She never expected to see Jesus, so she failed to recognize him. That's a possibility. But I think there's a more likely explanation. Recall his scars. Later, Jesus will show Thomas the wounds in his hands and in his side. And I believe Jesus' resurrected body still bore the marks of his suffering I've heard it said, the only man-made things we'll find in heaven will be the scars on our Lord Jesus. Jesus may have also bore the scars in his face where they plucked out his beard. And in his brow where they screwed in that thorny crown. I believe Jesus was severely disfigured by the brutal beating he'd endured. We might be in for a shocker ourselves when we get to heaven and when we first see Jesus. Initially, we'll weep when we finally see for ourselves the damage our sin has caused. But then our tears will turn to joy. We'll rejoice in those scars, for there'll be a testimony to His grace and mercy for us. But it does seem that after His resurrection, Jesus' appearance had altered. This may be why Mary and His disciples didn't always recognize Jesus at first glance. Well, John 20, verse 15, records Jesus' words to Mary. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. At first she didn't recognize Jesus until... He spoke her name. And then she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. And I'm sure it was the way Jesus spoke her name. When Mary's mom addressed her, it was to scold. When the men in her life spoke her name, they wanted to seduce. When her neighbors whispered Mary, their intent was to judge. 
Oh, but when Jesus called out Mary, his voice conveyed peace and acceptance and forgiveness. When Jesus said Mary, she knew she was loved. Hey, listen this morning. Jesus is speaking your name. And when she knew it was Jesus, Mary fell on her face and she grabbed his feet. She loved him so much. You remember before she met Jesus, she was a prostitute. A woman used and abused. The Gospels say that Mary was formerly a sleepover for seven demons. And Jesus had turned her whole life right side up. He had freed her from those demons and forgiven her. The carpenter from Nazareth had built for Mary a brand new life. And this is why Mary clung to Jesus with all her might. She had seen him crucified. Now she would never let go of him again. She wanted Jesus to stay with her forever. But Jesus speaks cryptic words to her in John 20 verse 17. He says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. I used to think that his concern was the body he was squeeze, she was squeezing. As if mortals can't touch glorified flesh. But in Matthew 28, the other women, they held on to Jesus' feet as they worshipped. And he didn't seem to mind that. Here Jesus is reacting not to Mary's touch, but to the intention of her grip. She's holding on to him as if she'll never let him go. But Jesus is about to ascend to his father. She'll have to let him go. She'll need to develop a new kind of attachment to Jesus. No longer through flesh and blood, but through the person of the Holy Spirit. And perhaps this is the greatest difference between Saturday's children and Sunday's children. For in a sense, Mary is a prototype for you and me and for all his disciples. Wouldn't we love to have the flesh and blood Jesus with us all of the time? Instead, we've been called to walk in his spirit. Our attachment to him is spiritual. See, Saturday's children, they want a physical affinity with Jesus. They look for him to reveal himself in primarily tangible ways. Let's measure his involvement in our lives by the balance of our checkbook or by the good doctor's report we receive, or whether our choice in politicians win office. They tighten their grip on earthly stuff, on what can be nailed down and held onto in their hands. But Jesus tells Mary she needs to strengthen her faith in what's spiritual. And the same is true for us. Sunday's children relate to Jesus spiritually now. We live not by sight, nor by touch, but by faith in His Spirit. Luke 24 verse 11 provides us the skeptical reaction of the disciples when the women returned to the upper room with news of Jesus' resurrection. Their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. At first, not just Thomas, but all 11 disciples doubted. Often it takes some time for Saturday's children to become Sunday's children, for their faith has to grow. Luke records another of Jesus' appearances later on day one. It occurred on the road to Emmaus. Two more of Saturday's children are headed home 
as a stranger approaches them and joins their conversation. These two men were former followers of Jesus, but now they're dejected. In fact, in Luke 24, verse 21, one of the guys states, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Notice his wording. We were hoping. Their hope had died. Apparently, these two men had wanted Jesus to take up arms and overthrow Rome, build a physical kingdom. But Jesus had given in without a fight. Now they're disillusioned and they're dejected. They even mention the lady's report from the tomb, but they dismiss it as the wishful thinking of emotional women. The flame of their faith has been snuffed out. For a time, these men had longed for life on a higher plane. But their brief flirtation with heaven had been shattered by the cruelty of the cross. Now they're taking a long walk back, back home to hopelessness. And let me suggest that the road to Emmaus not only runs seven miles northwest of Jerusalem, but at some point it cuts through the heart of every single person. Have you ever felt forsaken or disappointed? Or let down even by God? You thought he loved you. Yet now after all that's happened you're not so sure. The road to Emmaus is a lonely road. But guess who joins these jaded disciples? It's Jesus. They don't know it yet but the risen Lord is with them. Right beside them. And the same is true for every Emmaus traveler. Just because you don't see him. And just because his purposes are not clear doesn't mean he's not there. The problem is our own blind eyes. Yet he's about to reverse that too. For as they walk, Jesus quotes scripture. And he shows them in the Old Testament where God predicted all that had occurred. Jesus was priming their faith with God's word. And then it happened. When he broke the bread, their eyes were opened. And as soon as they realized it was Jesus, presto, he dematerializes into thin air. Jesus is gone. And those disciples are left by themselves to trust him by faith. And to cultivate a new spiritual relationship with a living Lord. And yet this so excites the men, they hightail it back to Jerusalem to let the disciples know what they've seen. Two more of Saturday's kids now belong to Sunday. Imagine back in Jerusalem, these two men, they join the scared and confused disciples behind locked doors. They're rehearsing their road trip when they're told in Luke 24, verse 36. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. Without a knock on the door, Jesus just appears. He slips past sheetrock. Inciting, the risen Christ crashes the powders party with hope. Again, not only did Jesus reverse death, but his reversal included blind eyes and doubting hearts and sorrow and hopelessness and fear and bondage and sin. Because of the resurrection, what was for centuries seen as irreversible suddenly became reversible. And to prove it, Jesus holds out his hands and his feet 
that still bear the scars. And he invites the disciples to squelch all their doubt. He says, handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. To prove his resurrection is real. That he's not a ghost. Jesus asked if they've got anything to eat. He munches on honeycomb and a piece of broiled fish. It's practical proof. Sunday's children trust that he lives. What a difference day one made. In less than 24 hours, the disciples had gone from the ash heap of despair to the mountaintop of hope and belief. For there'd be just 39 more days in Jesus' plan to prepare the church for his return to his heavenly home. For as soon as his lungs reinflated and his heart kick-started and the amino acids rekindled, as soon as the resurrection occurred, the clock began to tick. Now that redemption has been paid, Jesus is going to ascend back to his Father. He has now only 39 days left to prepare his disciples. And these old boys have a lot to learn. Author Philip Yancey calls the ascension of Jesus the most troublesome of all Christian doctrines. That Jesus would leave just six weeks after his resurrection. What a risk to take. Jesus took the kingdom of God that he had worked so hard to plant, the kingdom that he had died to redeem, and he turned it over to men who had denied him three days earlier. How could he leave so soon? The answer is that he didn't, at least not completely, for Jesus continued what he started through his spirit. Take note of how day one ends. In the upper room with his disciples, John 20 verse 22 tells us, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The joy and hope and love and power that came with the resurrection will be sustained through the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught his disciples the night before he was crucified, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. And Jesus knew the success of the church in ages to come would hinge on our ability to relate to him spiritually by faith. As he said to Mary, rather than strengthen your grip, strengthen your faith. And this is the challenge for us today. Do we have a Saturday mindset? Do we focus on our physical plight and status? Are we trapped by hopelessness? Have we conceded any possibility to better ourselves and change and reverse our lot in life? Are we destined to despair and loneliness? Have we given up on victory? Will we be ruled forever by our hurt and our bitterness and our doubt and our fear and our sin? You see, there are two ways to look at life. You can accept the cold, cruel world that crucified Jesus as the norm and view sin and sorrow and sadness as irreversible, or you can live your life in the light of Sunday. You can see the resurrection power as the new normal. The triumph of Jesus was the first step in a new day, in a new world, and a new life. 
Hopelessness is now reversible. Sin is now reversible. The resurrection proves that through the risen Christ, all that we thought was irreversible can now be reversed. Why sit and pout over a world gone bad? Why not believe in the risen Jesus and help change that world? Make a spiritual connection with God today. Open up your heart to the risen Lord and His Holy Spirit. Do you want to be a Saturday's child or a Sunday's child?